the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today, as we continue our study in the book of 1 Samuel, the Ammonites lay siege to Jabesh-Gilead and Saul faces his first real test as king. We'll pick it up in 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. The title of the message is, The Heart of a Leader. First Samuel chapter 11. As we jump back into First Samuel, it's good to be reminded of the fact that the book of First Samuel was written with the emphasis of giving us lessons from the heart. We've learned quite a few, some negative, some positive. The heart God wants us to have, the heart doesn't God want us to have. And by this point in time, when we reach chapter 11, God has picked Israel's first king. But it doesn't look like the picking of a king that we might be used to even in our culture. We don't have kings, but rulers. And with all the pomp and circumstance, he didn't have any of that. Not what one would normally expect. People go back home, as does Saul. There's no palace. There's not even a change of everyday life for Saul. He goes right back into the fields and taking care of his cattle. The only difference is in how some in the nation view him. We saw in the end of chapter 10 that God touched a group of men's hearts and those soldiers escort Saul home. But another group despised God's choice for king, and they refused to show their support. And Saul could have lashed out, but instead he goes about with his life. And so when we get to chapter 11, Saul is king, but really in name only. He's respected in a sense, but not really united behind by the entire nation. And so what does God do to change that? Well, he throws a crisis their way. So chapter 11, 1 Samuel, verse 1. And then Nahash the Ammonite came up, and he encamped against Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said unto Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, On this condition will I make a covenant with you, that I may thrust out all your right eyes and lay it for reproach upon all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said unto him, "Uh, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers unto all the coasts of Israel. And then if there be no man to save us, we will come out to you. And then came the messengers to Gabeah of Saul, and they told the tidings in the ears of the people, and all the people lifted up their voices and they wept. So here we see that the Ammonites have invaded the Transjordan. The Ammonites regularly quarreled with Israel because they had perpetuated this false narrative that Israel, when they came into the land under Moses, that they stole their land under Moses' leadership, that they took the Ammonites' land. That was not true. God specifically told the nation of Israel, do not take any Ammonite land, and they did not. 
But because this false narrative was going on in the land of the Ammonites, they made numerous incursions into Israel for the purpose of conquering the Transjordan area. In fact, just 40 years prior to this chapter, the Ammonites took control of all of that entire side of the Jordan, and they were actually making inroads across the river onto the west bank of the Jordan River. So if you remember in the book of Judges, God raised up Jephthah to win back the Transjordan land territory. But by the time we're here in Samuel, Jephthah's dead. And Israel's attention has been on who? The Ammonites? No, it's all on the Philistines, right? All their attention is focused to the other side. And so the Ammonite king decides it's a good time to press his claim again. And so he came up and encamped against, he laid siege to Jabesh Gilead. Now, Jabesh Gilead is an Israeli stronghold city. It's about nine miles southeast of Beth Shan on the other side of the Jordan River. And the idea is if the Ammonites can get Jabesh Gilead, this stronghold city, to surrender, they'll control the entire eastern bank of the Jordan once again. Now, what's interesting about Jabesh Gilead is this was the only city that didn't answer the call to deal with the tribe of Benjamin way back in Judges. Remember when the whole situation happened with the Levite's concubine and he chopped her up into 12 pieces and sent them all out? Jabesh Gilead was the only city that didn't answer that call to fight against Benjamin. And remember when the tribe of Benjamin only had like 600 men left in it, where did they get the wives from? They got most of them from Jabesh Gilead. So, you know, this is a, a city that most Israelis don't exactly have a ton of loyalty to. They say, you didn't, you didn't have our back when we needed you, so they don't necessarily have their back. So their first response is to actually make a deal to serve the Ammonites. They don't actually think to first go and, and get help from their brethren. And so they said, listen, make a covenant with us, make a treaty with us, and we'll serve you. We'll be your, your loyal vassals. You'll be our king and we'll be your subjects. Now, that's interesting because Israeli individuals, Israeli tribes, let alone cities, weren't allowed to go rogue by making deals with other nations. They're all supposed to be one nation together. They don't allow them to make deals like this. And besides, they have a king now, right? Shouldn't he be making those decisions? But you see, that's the problem. Israel isn't united behind their king. They're living like it's still the time of the judges, where every man does that which is right in his own eyes. Well, the Ammonite king hears their offer, and he decides he's not going to make it easy for them. And then they hash the Ammonite, verse 2, answered them and said, On this condition will I make this pact with you, this agreement. If you let me thrust, which means to gouge out, if you'll let me gouge out all of your right eyes so I can lay it for an approach upon all Israel. The word there, reproach, means to put someone in a disgraced state. Basically, the Ammonite king would be able to say, they'd rather me pluck out their right eyes than fight against me. That's how worried they are about me. And it would have a little bit more weight than just that. It also would have the weight of not just proof of the Ammonites' superiority, but also that their claim that Israel stole the land was a legitimate one. Now, one might think that people of Jabesh Gilead would refuse such an awful deal, but they don't refuse it outright. Look what this says in verse 3. And the elders of Jabesh said unto him, "Uh, Give us seven days' respite, which means withdraw from us. Lift the siege for seven days, that we may send messengers unto all the borders, all the coasts of Israel, and And then, if there be no man to rescue us, then we'll come out to you and you can do the whole eyeball thing. Now, you might be wondering, why would Nahash agree to take an inferior military position, like not lay siege anymore? Why would he do that? Why would he give the opportunity for them to get aid from their brethren? 
Well, that's because the acknowledgement of Israel's so-called guilt in stealing their land was a prize far greater than defeating just one city. Far greater. Because it would legitimize his invasion and it would legitimize any future invasions the Ammonites made. And it would also galvanize his people as those who had been wronged, even though it was actually a lie. Now, the question, of course, is, why not send messengers straight to the king? Well, again, Israel's not looking at Saul like that yet. He might have stood head and shoulders above everyone else. They might have said, God save the king. But the after effects were too normal. I mean, there weren't like rainbows in the sky. And there weren't, you know, everything didn't seem to work out exactly like they thought. They thought, well, this is great. Okay, now I guess we're done. And they all go home. There was only a few that God touched their heart that they were really all behind Saul. They didn't feel any different. So they didn't act any different, which is an important lesson for us. We don't do what's right. We don't obey the Lord because it feels good or because it feels right. We do it because we love him, right? He said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, right? We do it because we love him and we love him because we trust that he first loved us. And so I would ask you before we go deeper in here to Saul's response, does that describe your Christianity that you do things because you love him? You you obey him because you love him. Or do you have more like Israel's attitude? You do it when you feel like it. Well, verse 4. Then came the messengers to Gabeah of Saul. Not Saul in particular. Remember the name of the city became Gabeah of Saul because he became the king. It became famous for that. Otherwise, it was just Gabeah. What's interesting is he's actually the last person to hear the news because he's not there when the messengers come. Then came the messengers to Gabeah of Saul and they told the tidings in all the ears of the people and all the people lifted up their voices and wept. And behold, Saul came after the herd out of the field, and Saul said, What ails the people that they weep? And they told him the tidings of the men of Jabesh. Now, why were the people all weeping when they heard the news? Well, they thought the Ammonite problem had been dealt with. Some of them were probably old enough that they remembered the Ammonite oppression that they'd experienced before Jephthah rescued them. So in their minds, things had gone back to how they were before Samson and Jephthah had delivered them. Now they had enemies on two fronts again. It was horrible news. And, you know, they didn't look at it as, well, we'll just unite and go fight them because Israel had been so divided during the period of the judges. Because of how divided they were, if you you read the stories of the judges, you remember they'll say, and they they raise the call to go fight, and then it says like two two or three tribes came. You know, this was not something that they could just raise the war call and everybody would come. It was hard to get everyone to rally against an enemy. Even the good judges would only get a response from a few tribes when war was necessary. So this was bad, bad, bad news, not just for Jabez Gilead, but for all of Israel and their future. I love what verse 5 says, and behold, Saul came after the herd out of the field, walking, but he's just walking behind his cattle. I always chuckle when I read about this because it's not kind of how you would like picture the president or a king or, you know, prime minister. You don't, wouldn't figure him, you know, hey, we need a quote for the press on where is he? He's, well, he's out tending his flocks, man. You're gonna have to wait. So I imagine if I was Saul, when I got home, I would imagine I'd probably feel a little silly for hiding in the stuff after having to shovel your first pile of manure, going back to normal life. He must have thought the word for king just meant same. And yet, I have to smile when I see that Saul didn't kind of buck at the idea that 
a king still needed to do his daily work to provide for his family. I won't go into my personal feelings on civil service, but suffice it to say, it should be service. It should be service. It was great that those soldiers decided to escort Saul home, but that didn't put food on the table. And so Saul had to go out and he had to take care of his cattle, just like everybody else. It's interesting, Samuel, later on, when Saul kind of got too big for his britches, he told him in 1 Samuel fifteen seventeen, he said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not made the head of the tribes of Israel and the Lord anointed you king over Israel? Being a good leader doesn't mean thinking small. Saul's going to think big in just a moment. But being a good leader does mean thinking yourself small. That's what it does mean. Thinking yourself small. Not thinking you're better than those you serve. And so what's funny is Saul comes in here and the Hebrew literally means he came in and said, what? Literally in the Hebrew, it means he came in and said, what? Why y'all crying? And they told him the tidings of the men of Jabesh. Well, when Saul heard that, verse 6, it says, the spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard those tidings and his anger was kindled greatly. And he took a yoke of oxen and he hewed them in pieces and he sent them throughout all the coasts of Israel by the hands of messengers saying, whosoever comes not forth after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done unto his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people and they came out with one consent. And when he numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah were 30,000. Start off by the initial what happens after he hears the news. It says in verse six, the spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard these tidings. The phrase to come upon here, it means to have an overpowering force join a common force with the result being a successful action because it's the will of the overpowering force. I love that. It's this idea that I'm just a common force. Saul was just a common force, but the spirit of God joined with him it was a partnership here. It wasn't that God just took over. Sometimes I will hear people say that and like, man, you know, just God just took over. God doesn't ever just take over. He partners with us. He doesn't remove us from the equation. He doesn't remove our will. He partners with us. And so Saul isn't much of a force. He's a common force, but God is an overpowering force. And he joins with Saul and the result is going to be success. The Holy Spirit didn't take Saul over. He doesn't work like that. This is just like when Saul prophesied in chapter 10. When Samuel told Saul, he said, listen, the Spirit of the Lord is going to come upon you and you're going to prophesy. So whatever God puts in your hand to do, go do it. You know, he didn't say, and when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon you, you're just going to be taken over. You ain't going to know what's going to happen. He said, no, no, no. God's going to put some things in your heart to do. And when it's in your hand, do you see the opportunity to do it? Trust him and go do it. We partner with the Lord in this. It's an act of our will to allow the Holy Spirit to use through us, to be used through us. And so when the Holy Spirit said, Saul, I have something planned with this, Saul yielded to what the Holy Spirit wanted to do, and he allowed the Holy Spirit to take the lead, the stronger force to take the lead. And when you and I partner with the Lord like that, awesome things happen. It says that Saul, his anger was kindled greatly. That was the work of the Holy Spirit here. His anger was kindled greatly. Now, in the Hebrew, it means his nose was aroused. And that is just a Hebrew idiom, a way of saying that you have a strong feeling of displeasure. 
Saul was upset because a wrong had been done. And by the way, that's what righteous anger is. Righteous anger isn't geared towards individuals or people or a people group. It is geared towards wrong that has been done. It is an anger at sin. It's an anger at unrighteousness. That's why the Bible says that our wraths doesn't bring about God's righteousness because our wrath is often directed where? Usually at somebody, right? Normally, if I'm mad, I'm mad at somebody. It's very rare moments I can say that, you know, the Spirit of the Lord came upon me and my anger was kindled. Normally, it's Will's flesh got the best of him and he lost it. You would think, well, Saul would be weeping. It's not that Saul wasn't moved to compassion for his fellow Israelis. It's more that he was angry about the right thing. Well, what was the right thing? Well, the right thing is that there were two very wrong things going on here. Number one, the Ammonites had zero claim to that land because Israel didn't take any land from them in the first place. This was a lie, and God hates lies. It is righteous for us to hate certain things. This is where I think often in our culture, we confuse things. If we hate something that's evil, often it's people, you don't love. Where's the love? And it's like, I love you. I hate what you're doing right now. There are numerous times that I'm sure my wife was not happy with me, didn't like me very much, but she still loved me. Doesn't mean she said, well, it was wonderful that you lost your temper with me and treated me like I was a slave. It's wonderful that you were unkind to me and stepped all over who I am. It's wonderful that you ignored me. That's not love. But love still cares for that person, still wants the best for that person, still is for that person, even when you hate what they've done. And the Lord is very clear that there are certain things that he hates. This verse, or these series of verses in Proverbs 16 through 19 of been in my mind for the last probably 12, 16 years. Because I don't ever want to find myself either A, doing these things, or B, supporting anyone or anything that acts these ways. In Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, God says, through the wisdom of Solomon, the wisest man in all the world, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, These six things does the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him. First off, an arrogant look, a proud look. God hates that. And understand, there are things here. There are seven things here. They are not listed in tears. He hates them all equally. A proud look. And then secondly, what we're dealing with here with the Ammonites, a lying tongue. God hates a lying tongue. Thirdly, hands that shed innocent blood. God hates that. Fourthly, a heart that devises wicked plans. Fifthly, feet that are swift in running to do evil. Sixth, a false witness that speaks lies. So now this is not just a lying tongue, but you're actually going to go in front of others and you're going to testify that what you're saying is true when in actuality it's a lie. And then lastly, he that sows discord among brethren. Those seven things are all in the same section. God hates them all equally. They're all an abomination in his sight. And so when the anger of the Lord came upon Saul and his anger was kindled, his nose was aroused, he had great displeasure, it was because there was a great wrong, an abomination that was taking place. These guys were going to threaten innocent people over a lie? No, 
Saul was angry about that. And the second thing that angered him is that weeping should not have been Israel's first response. They should have already been planning on how they were going to rescue their countrymen. And so in verse 7, it says, how does he act on this anger? He took a yoke of oxen, hewed them in pieces, and he sent them throughout all the coasts of Israel by the hands of messengers. Now, I don't think he went and grabbed somebody else's cattle. (laughs) I'm pretty sure these are his own cattle, which means this cost him something. This cost him something. So Saul knew Israel's history. The Levite had done this to his concubine to get the nation to finally act, to kind of grab their attention, to shock them into action. And yet Saul doesn't do it exactly like the Levite had. Number one, the Levite's action cost him nothing. His concubine was already dead. Cost him nothing. Saul does this at the expense of two of his herd, a yoke of oxen. It's interesting, David, who is a wonderful leader, not flawless, but he was a wonderful leader. He said he would not offer to the Lord that which cost him nothing. And Saul shows his seriousness by paying the price first. I'm asking you to pay a price. I'm asking you to put your life on the line, but I'm the first one paying a price here. And that is what good leaders do. They do not crack the whip from behind and say mush. They lead from the front at first cost to themselves. Secondly, the difference, the Levite, when he sent the pieces, he didn't give any instructions. He just sent the pieces out. He just sent body parts. But Saul sent clear instructions. He says, whosoever does not come forth after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done unto his oxen. He says, it's time to go to war. It's time to follow my lead. He says, this isn't just my idea. This is God's idea confirmed by Samuel. So follow our lead as we follow the Lord. By the way, that's also what good leaders do. They say, the Lord is leading me this way. Come follow me. And then what did Paul say? Follow me as I follow Christ, right? That's what good leaders do. They don't say, just follow me. They say, follow me as I follow Christ. And then lastly, the Levite, he didn't warn of the consequences of inaction, even though inaction would bring about God's judgment. Saul warned the people what would happen if they didn't follow the Lord. He says to him, listen, if you don't do this, so shall it be done unto your oxen. Now, the question, of course, is, is Saul making a personal threat? Like, is he going to go to everybody's house that doesn't show up and kill their oxen? Seems a bit odd if that was the case. He's just a herdsman with a fancy title at the moment. I don't think that would have moved a lot of people. I do think, though, it's more likely that Saul's referring to what the Ammonites would do to them if they didn't follow the Lord's lead. Because if you don't listen to the Lord, he's just going to allow the Ammonites to have their way, just like he did in the period of Judges. And so you think you're going to be spared just because you're living over here? And notice what it says. How do the people respond? It says, and the fear of the Lord fell on the people and they came out with one consent. What does it mean that the fear of the Lord came upon them? Well, the fear of the Lord, the Bible tells us, is to hate evil. That's what it says. So the best definition I've ever heard for the fear of the Lord is this. It is to love what God loves and to hate what he hates. It's the best definition I've ever heard of the fear of the Lord. And so... The idea here is Saul's angry because evil is being done. Wrong is being done. And so he calls them to have a similar reaction, to hate the evil that's being done and to rally behind my leadership as I'm sensing God is leading me to do something about it. And so it says the fear of the Lord came upon them. 
They loved what God loved and hated what God hated. The same work God's spirit did in Saul, he did in the rest of the nation. God's spirit was saying, this is wrong. As they got these parts and they were, oh, they heard the message, they realized this is wrong. We can't just sit back and not do something. We can't just sit back and let other tribes take care of it. God is summoning us. We need to partner with him. And praise the Lord, they did partner with him just like Saul did. For it says, they came out with one consent. Literally, that means as if they were one person. No disagreements. They they all moved as one. Listen, if you've never led anything, you may not know this, but most of us have had to lead something at some point or another. One of the hardest things to do in life is to get a large group of people to move forward in unison. I never dreamed how hard it would be just to keep track of 18 people in Israel. We lost one (laughs) for a little bit. (laughs) It was quite the panicking moment. And these were not children. These were adults. It is not easy getting a group of people that all have their own thoughts. They have their own personalities. They have their own opinions about things. They have their own ways they think things can be fixed. And to get them all moving in the same direction, it's not easy. But when a leader yields to God's spirit, God's spirit can overcome those challenges. And so verse 8, when he numbered the people in Bezek, they were 300,000. Now, Saul, he's got his work cut out for him trying to unite this group. And yet, here they were. Now that they were united on this task at least, they decide, all right, let's send messengers to Jabesh Gilead and let them know we're going to come to their rescue. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at 407-523-0800 during our office hours, Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.